I'm Wayne Jacobson, and this is my book, Finding Church. What if there really is something more? Chapter 17, Unity Without Conformity. Matthew 23, 8, you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Characteristic 7, unity emerges from wholehearted agreement, not from conformity imposed from the outside. The best moments in my nearly 40-year marriage to Sarah are those when we are doing something together that we both wholeheartedly enjoy and are both fully invested in. No, we don't live like that all the time. Not all our interests overlap, so we don't do everything together. Some days we're sorting through conflicts or differences of opinion. Sometimes I'll give up what I would prefer to serve her. Other times she lays down her life to participate in something with me. Those days are special, too, because love runs deep when it does not seek its own. But in those moments where our desires, insights, and passions overlap completely, and with one heart and mind we are engaged together, we get to celebrate the fullness of what it means to be not two people, but one in agreement and joy. That can happen in a project around the house, making an important decision, giving our lives away to someone who needs help, a moment of recreation, spending an evening with friends we both love, or even in celebrating the intimacy of our marriage. The psalmist knew that joy as he exclaimed how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity, Psalm 133. There is really nothing like it, finding our way into genuine affection, humility, and generosity that lets you experience his depth of unity with your spouse makes every day a joyful adventure. Although marriage is prime real estate to discover how mutual selflessness leads to oneness, it is certainly not the only one. Paul invited the young church on a similar adventure. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and to be of one mind, Ephesians 4.2. We've been leading up to this chapter since the book began. The power of the church lies in the unity they find together, men and women loving and working together wholeheartedly because they have found their life and joy in Him instead of their own preferences and ideas. How could any conformity-based system produce this unity when people are following the expectations of others rather than living out of an ever-expanding heart? Without that, real unity cannot exist. Early on, I was part of a church that was of one mind because only one mind was allowed to function, the senior pastor's. Everyone else had to shut up and go along. If you wouldn't follow his every whim, then you needed to leave. Some of the so-called revival movements talk openly about people supporting the vision of the house by unquestioned obedience to the man at the top. Institutions need that kind of conformity for an aggressive program, but any unity it produces is artificial, contrived, and short-lived. Jesus prayed for a very different process. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. John 17:20-23 Let the majesty of those words sink in. Jesus didn't pray for conformity, 
but a unity that can only arise out of lives transformed by his glory. The answer to this prayer fulfills God's passion in the earth, and by it the world will know that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. When people out of diverse backgrounds come to complete unity of heart, purpose, and focus, God is unveiled in a way nothing else can accomplish. Of course this is the Father's to do. It would be impossible for humanity to produce anything close to it, which is why Jesus asks his Father to give it, not his disciples, to work on it. I've tasted it many times in my life. When I get to know people from other cultures, and we can almost complete each other's sentences when we talk about him, then I know how powerful this unity is. It's not because we've read the same books or memorized the same catechism, but because we are coming to know the same Father and learning to trust Him enough to lose our own agenda and embrace His. The multifaceted wisdom of God is spread through the entire body, and only as we learn to live in love with one another will we be able to see the fruits of it. No one sees completely. No one has all the answers. Unity is not uniformity, it's harmony. As God transforms us, he takes unique expression in each of our personalities and stories. As he brings diverse people together, we all get a fuller view of God and what he is like than any one of us would see alone. Like a symphony, it is the harmonizing blend of our uniqueness wrapping around his heart and purpose. As we all are tuning to his frequency, we will be in tune with one another and the agreement and collaborations it produces can have a profound impact on the world. This is the dance of growing unity that allows us to reflect one heart, one purpose, and one mind. What Jesus prayed for in John 17, Paul described in more detail in Philippians 4, 1 and 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit— If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What makes Paul's joy complete? It wasn't in his great exploits for God, but in watching people find their way into the unity that Father gives. They become so enmeshed in the life of God that they have the ability to recognize and turn away from selfish ambition, what we do for profit, power, and privilege, and vain conceit, drawing attention to ourselves in a way that makes us look better than others. They will look beyond what's good for them and also care about what is good for others. And that creates an environment in which the kingdom is put on display. It doesn't take much. Look at the requirements. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, are you one with him? Do you trust him to change you? Then trust him to shape others around you. If any comfort from his love, do you know Jesus has your back even when others fail you? You will be betrayed. You will be lied to and lied about as people try to manage their pain. Do you know that you're loved enough that God will take care of you? If any fellowship of the Spirit, am I doing what I'm doing to get the benefits I anticipate, or am I following Him as best I can? Is He big enough to get through to me every day whatever He needs me to do 
and however he asks me to lay down my life for a greater kingdom. If any tenderness and compassion, do I have the least bit of affection for people I'm around so that I'm a soft heart for them to engage? And do I care at least as much about their well-being as I care for my own? Paul doesn't ask for a lot of these things. If you have any, the smallest portion opens up a very wide door to the life of unity. When you recognize these in people, you'll see how easy walking in unity actually is. It will grow out of your love for each other, not necessarily because you see things the same way or are involved in the same activities. Who do you see around you growing in their oneness with Christ? They may be struggling, young on the journey, or even a bit fleshy at times, but are they hungry for him? I know I found people like that when I see them go against their own self-interest to fulfill a deeper leading in their heart. This is where conformity-based systems fail. People are so busy conforming to doctrine or rituals that they never find the freedom to ask the difficult questions, find their own journey inside of the new creation, and get to know God in a way that transforms them. They stay underlings in a system designed to keep them safe, but that actually inhibits their growth. There's much I disagree with in Bishop John Shelby Spong's writings, but he's absolutely right when he said, quote, religion is in the guilt-producing control business. The church doesn't like for people to grow up because you can't control grown-ups. One researcher said that the pedagogy of many Sunday morning services is equal to that of a kindergarten class. Where else as adults do we all file in, sit in rows, sing songs, parrot what we're told, and listen passively to what is being said up front? Unity comes from those who are learning to follow him and refuse to exploit people for their own agenda or seek to impose their will on others. That's what Jesus and Paul were talking about, often called church discipline. It wasn't to banish someone from being loved and shaming them into better choices. It was simply to be honest about the fact that unless we're learning to follow him, we cannot share a journey. We can love people lost in self-indulgence, but we can't grow in unity with them. The fruit of this unity is that we actually become part of God's unfolding purpose in the creation. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you. By my Father in heaven, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Matthew 18, 18 to 20. Tapping the power of growing unity doesn't demand large groups of people. Jesus said where two or three agree or simply get together in his name, amazing things can happen. Agreement helps us identify truth. Since we all know in part and see in part, as those parts harmonize together, we will get a clearer picture of truth. We all have an amazing capacity for self-deception and to gather information that agrees with what we want to hear and believe. But as we think and explore with others on this journey, Jesus' way of viewing things becomes more evident. While that is valuable in sorting out God's character and purpose, it is also incredibly helpful as we learn to live in that truth in the concrete decisions of life. Am I part of a transformative relationship with him or simply serving myself hoping God will bless it? Since truth sets us free, we'll want to embrace it even if it challenges some of our pet theologies. 
That's why people growing in Christ want to be in the widest possible conversation and engage people who don't see things exactly the way they do. That includes the writings and thoughts of saints long past, as well as others around them. They don't mind considering someone else's thoughts because they don't see truth as so fragile that they will be easily deceived by contrary views. Their confident truth will win out in the end. Whenever I disagree with someone growing in Jesus, I realize one of three things is true. Either they're right and I'm wrong and God has more work to do in me, or they're wrong and I'm right and he has more work to do in them, or, and this is most likely, we're both a bit off and he has more work to do in both of us. But as we keep loving and keep listening to each other and to him, we'll come to understand more than we'd ever grasp on our own. Some things will be confirmed, others exposed and overturned as I continue to grow. This is not truth by democracy. We each must hold to truth as we see it in our hearts, and no one is asked to betray their confidence for an outward show of unity. Instead, we trust that as we grow in him, we'll also grow together. Growing agreement allows us to collaborate in anything the Lord gives us to do. We know God is asking us to do something together when our hearts are in agreement about it. That's the power of decentralized systems. Where there's agreement, people can act together even if others might disagree or not support it. In time, the fruit of their labor will reveal whether or not God was in it. And if people get it wrong, the impact of it will be far less than if a large group of people were compelled to go along, even if their heart wasn't in it. A few years ago, a book on business management called The Starfish and the Spider, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations, provided a powerful image of decentralized structures. The spider represents traditional organizations with CEOs, hierarchical structures, and top-down management. If you cut off the head of a spider, it dies. How many large congregations have simply crashed when their charismatic leader died, moved on to something else, or failed? The starfish, however, has no head to cut off. If it loses a leg, the starfish will grow a new one. And then the leg itself will grow into another starfish because it doesn't have a centralized brain. It is a neural network that can regenerate itself easily. The authors make the point that decentralized networks are far more resilient and have tremendous power because they are not bogged down by the needs of an infrastructure that will compromise the values of the community. People are more engaged and contributions of those who share a common passion have far more impact than conventional institutional models. Their communities prize relationship, engender trust, and pursue a purpose that transcends financial reward. As we'll see in the next chapter, this kind of network frees leadership from the need to manage and puts them in a better position to equip and facilitate others. What I love about this picture is that the body of Christ functions with the best of both worlds. We do have a head, Jesus himself. But he doesn't lead through an institutional or hierarchical system. He leads everyone personally. This network can function quickly and effectively without the overhead or distraction of a large institution. Our growing agreement moves heaven and earth. The authority we talked about in the last chapter gets raised significantly where God's people come into agreement. Two or three in agreement with God and each other raise the power of prayer to effectiveness unseen individually. It was the strangest prayer meeting I'd ever been to. More than 100 people had gathered, and before we started, one of the facilitators suggested that we only pray about those things for which we had massive agreement. If someone wanted to pray, they were encouraged to tell the group what they wanted to pray. 
They even took time to discuss some of the suggestions to make sure everyone understood. Then they would ask, how many of you would agree with this prayer? They looked for more than 90% to nod in agreement. If they didn't get that, they would go on to the next suggestion. It blessed me to see the honesty of people who would affirm some and lovingly shrug off others. There seemed to be no embarrassment when someone was told, you might be right, but the rest of us don't seem to be there yet. Checking out requests with others to discern God's will and praying fervently in agreement moves the needle appreciably. Of course, our most important agreement is with Jesus and the way he works. This is not the way to get God to give us what we want. I have been in meetings where prayers were offered for the most outrageous things, like God stopping some sin from ever happening again in California. Yes, everyone was in agreement, but they weren't praying in tune with God's activity, only their wishes. Relationships of love allow us to grow in the common unity Jesus invites us into. By embracing a journey with others, their insights will shape our hearts. Where we don't have agreement, we can tread lightly as we continue to see what more God wants to reveal to us. But in those moments, where our hearts merge with His and with others, we taste the awesome joy that God has known in Himself for all eternity and tap the unbelievable power that results in transformed lives and circumstances around us.